It's time for The Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cyclists, trails, travel, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. You can subscribe to our weekly podcast at OutspokenCyclist.com or through your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. and welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. Thanks for joining me today. This podcast is a twofer. My first guest is David Stanley, and he is a friend of Charles Pelkey, arguably one of the nicest guys to ever grace the pages of cycling journalism, along with a lot of other fine attributes. Charles is experiencing some unprecedented health issues that are stretching his family's resources thin, and David has stepped up to help. I think you'll find this story to be very compelling. My second guest is a professor of history at UVA in the engineering department, and how those two, history and engineering, come together is the topic of our conversation today as it relates to mobility, sustainability, and cycling. So let's get right to it. Every once in a while, a really good guy gets a really bad deal. And in an effort to ease some of that burden, we're going to see what we can do to help out today. If you've ever participated in the live update guy episodes, a mix of running commentary, a Monty Python-like atmosphere, and even some poetry during some of the grand tours, you will remember the witty and sometimes crazy dialogue between cycling journalists Patrick O'Grady and Charles Pelkey. They were joined online by others who added their commentary to the mix. If you don't know about Charles, he was a Democratic state legislator in Wyoming. Okay, he was the only Democratic state legislator in Wyoming. He's an attorney a stellar and well-respected cycling commentator and journalist, a breast cancer survivor, a father, husband, and really just about the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. Unbeknownst to me, he has been suffering from a series of vascular issues that have required several major surgeries and hours and hours of anesthesia. And when I received a message from Patrick O'Grady this week, I knew I needed to delve into the situation. I'll let Charles's friend, David Stanley, read you in. Hello, David. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for taking time to talk with me today. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Diana. This is, um, this is really near and dear to my heart, what we're going to be talking about. So I really have welcomed the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners about, uh, about Charles Pelkey. Right. And Charles and I have spoken in the past. He and I ran into each other at a NABS in Denver a few years ago. He had his daughter, Annika, with him. She was a little Mm -hmm. girl then. So it's been, (laughs) (laughs) but it's funny. People don't think about Charles about how big he is. He's like six, seven. And he's just this, but he's the sweetest man ever. And uh, a lot of people know him from the live update guy stuff that he and Patrick O'Grady, Mad Dog, used to do when it came time for the Giro and the tour and all of those things, you know, this kind of running dialogue and conversation that would go on. But now Charles is kind of having some problems and I'm really impressed with what you've done with this GoFundMe. So um, I'd like you to kind of bring us up to date 
Let's start with the fact that, that Charles was diagnosed many years ago with breast cancer, which is a very unusual thing for men. And he has never backed away from saying how important it is for screenings and all of that. Did that lead to some of the problems he's having now, as far as you know? As far as I know, no. And as far as what he's told me, they his doctors don't believe that there is a connection, but you know, I'm a cancer survivor myself. I had two bouts of uh, metastatic melanoma, by the way, shameless plug. You can read my book about melanoma, get it on Amazon. I also narrated the audio book. It's called Melanoma. It started with a freckle. Oh, we will post something about that. Absolutely cool. oh, on our you. site. Sure. Of course. Appreciate that. Um, and so I do one thing that I've learned in consultation with like my oncologists and my surgeons and just I also have a really sharp family practice doc is that cancer affects our bodies in a lot of ways that are not directly situations where you can connect the dots. So my uh, family practice doc had said one time that you can't necessarily say you had this dot, dot, dot. Now you have that as a result, he said, but your body gets beat to shit. That's the quote with cancer. And he said, so we are, I am really loath as a, as a physician to say, there's no relationship between what you had in 2006, 2007, what happened to you with, I had pulmonary embolisms in 2012, uh, and what your health is like today. He said, I, we don't understand the interrelationships that deeply yet. So uh, it, it seems pretty clear to Charles and his docs that there is no relationship between his breast cancer and all of his vascular issues that he's been battling over the last six months. But Charles and some medical experts I've spoken to would certainly never say it, it's not. So I, I, it's a nebulous concept, but it's it's pretty accurate these days, I think. Well, you want to sort of think that all things are connected somehow so right. that if yeah. something, you know, left the door open for dot, right. dot, dot, that could happen. So let's let's come up to speed with what's going on. So for those who don't remember my conversation with Charles, he was the, as I remember, the only Democratic legislator in the Wyoming state legislature. You are correct. That is true. And he decided not to run passing that torch to a woman, as I remember, but he is an attorney and he became an attorney late in life. You know, he was into, you know, he he worked for what? He worked for a lot of the publications. Right. I believe he worked for Bike Retailer. Uh, I know he was an editor uh, after he moved on from being a contributing writer and then a regular writer. Uh, he was an editor at Velo News as well. And he hobnobbed with some of the biggest names in sports journalism when he was covering the Tour de France. Uh, you know, jumping ahead a little bit uh, on this GoFundMe that I've been running for Charles, you know, it's been shared by people like David Walsh. Uh, it's been shared by people like uh, uh, Brian Cookson, you know, the, uh, and you know, obviously pretty big names in the world of cycling, among others, Killian Kelly, uh, Shane Stokes, a whole, uh, the fathering them. Uh, fellows, uh, just a whole laundry list of cycling's elite uh, journalists because, well, Charles has, like you said, Charles is such a good guy. Graham Watson last night shared it, you know, and Graham is one of the three or four most famous cycling photographers in the world. Graham Corvos, John Pierce, a couple other guys that, oh, Tim Diwali. Um, Graham shared it and he said, if you ever shared a big beer with Charles Pelkey at Cyclocross Worlds, 
or not contribute to this and share this around. And, you know, you don't get a higher testimonial in our world than from guys like Graham Watson. Let me reintroduce you. Sure. We're, we're speaking with David Stanley on behalf of Charles Pelkey. And did Charles know you were going to do this? Sort of. <laughs> That's <laughs> so a very did you loaded sneak question. It under? Did you sneak it under his nose or? Well, it, I'll, I'll tell the story. It's it's kind of touching and it tells you something about Charles. By the way, um, uh, his, his kids uh, are just dumbfounded about this. Annika, who is now six feet tall and looks like she should be runway model. She is. Yes, she should. Here. She's stunning. She's unbelievably good looking girl. Uh, but or woman now, I think of her kind of like you too. I remember seeing pictures of Annika when she was seven. Um, they're just, the kids are dumbfounded by this. And uh, so I, I was I got a phone call from Charles on Friday or actually on messenger and it didn't sound like him. And I know Charles, we talk via messenger and whatnot pretty regularly, you know, at least once every two weeks or so. And I knew he was struggling with his health. I knew he was struggling with work and he messaged me on messenger and said, I really need to talk to you. And I said, okay, you know, whatever, uh, let's, let's talk. I'm here. We get on the phone and he was, it was late in the afternoon. I was just getting ready to go work out. And he was just, he just sounded like he'd been through the ringer. He was so exhausted. And as, as you know, we've all, we're, at, we're both at an age now where we've had health issues. When they're, when they're hitting you hard, all you want to really do is sleep. And so Charles is telling me about, he hasn't been able to work for six months. He's been through these 25 hours of vascular procedures over the last six months, four operations, uh, he has another one coming up, I believe, later this week. And by the way, this is all on the uh, GoFundMe page. So I'm not you know, telling any stories here, no, violating no. any HIPAA legislation. Um, and I said, well, Charles, what are you doing for money? He said, well, I got health insurance. I said, no, no, no. Because as a cancer survivor, I know that it's the ancillary costs that are just crushing. And, you know, in his case, it's even worse. I live an hour from one of the best medical centers in the world. It, I'm in Flint, Michigan. Ann Arbor's just down the road. You can't get better medical care anywhere in the world for a lot of things than Ann Arbor. Charles lives in Laramie. And not to denigrate the docs in Laramie, but there's a big difference between a university medical center, which is doing the best research, and anything like that. So Charles and Diana have spent immense amounts of money traveling to the doctors, you know, staying overnight, in addition to all the stuff that medical insurance doesn't cover. Right. Those 20% co-pays will kill you. And so they're actually uh, at a point with Charles being unable to work and Diana, you know, having to take so much time off from work to tend to uh, Charles and get him places and whatnot that uh, he needed money. And he didn't want to say any of that as we're having this conversation. And, and I knew it was true. And I said, well, Charles, you know, you sound like you really could use a little help here. He says, yeah, you know, he said, I'm really concerned about the finance. I'm concerned if I don't make it, what's going to happen with Diana in the house? He said, I'm just, it makes, it keeps me awake nights and I don't need that. And I said, well, how about if I do this, Charles? How about if I set up a GoFundMe for you? He goes, well, I was thinking maybe I would ask you that, but I'm really glad that you brought it up first instead. <laughs> well, and the good news is, from you, and that already got around because I just I had a little short conversation with Steve Frothingham from Bicycle oh, Retailer sure. this morning. Yeah. And he said, yeah, we posted something on Saturday. And I'm like, how'd you get so far ahead of me? Because 
Uh, Patrick O'Grady sent me a long message explaining what was going on, and I immediately put it out on social media and contacted you. And now it's, but among everybody, it is really blowing up. So it was a very modest start. You asked, I think, for $2,500. Five. We asked Charles wanted to do 25 at first. I said, what do you think you need? And he said, I think 25. I said, Charles, be reasonable here. I said, that's like a couple months worth of mortgage payment and utilities. Right. He's like, well, yeah, I guess that's right. And I said, that's not enough money. I said, let's set it at five and we'll see when we'll see how we do. Okay. So it is, it is one o'clock, almost one 30 on Tuesday afternoon, January 10th. Where is it? Uh, I have that page right here. Let me go to it. $15,450. He must be just gobsmacked, as they say in England. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I sure was. I mean, I, I, I thought we would do well. I, I knew we would hit our goal. Let me put it that way. Because I know Charles. And I know goodness gets rewarded sooner or later. And you can't be a better person than Charles has been. Everybody loves him. They respect his work. Even people who, with the exception of one person that we're not going to really mention, uh, even people that he's called out for their behavior in the Peloton uh, or kind of off the bike, you know, professional riders, some of those guys have contributed to this fundraiser as well. Because when you have integrity, and Charles has got that in spades, right? Uh, when people write things about you that are true, but you don't necessarily want to have it out there, you can still respect the integrity, even if you don't like the message. And that's what we're seeing here. Uh, there's several people, and I can't share those names, obviously, that have contributed and said, you know, essentially, Charles and I butted heads plenty over the, the years when I was racing or the years when I was managing. But this is a whole different thing. It is a whole different thing. You know, it comes down to humanity and kindness and watching out for our, yeah. our own. Charles is one of us. So um, I want to ask you before we tell listeners how they can go to the GoFundMe, find out more. We will also post my conversation that I had with Charles a few years ago. So if people want to re-listen and learn more about Mm -hmm. him, um, we'll have that on the website. But tell my listeners about you and your podcast, David. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah. I'm on a show called The Feed Zone. You might remember a guy named John Galloway. John and John started the VeloCast. He's a Scottish fellow. And he reached out to me, uh, I don't know, about a year ago now. And also another guy that you probably are familiar with, Patrick Bulger uh, from Pack Filler. Everybody loves, I mean, he is, I believe, the original cycling podcast. PB's been doing this thing since 1999. He was podcasting. Oh, yeah, he in was ahead of me. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it started out as John. Galloway, me and Patrick. And the feed zone is a little different than what John had been originally doing. He was doing a lot of race analysis and race reporting and really up to the minute, you know, because he and his partners with this were so sharp. John has stepped out of the podcast business. Uh, he still helps out on, in, on the back end, but it's now his, uh, his sidekick, Gary Fairley, who is a terrific guy. He's really incisive and really funny. And uh, also Chris Sidwell's. Uh, Chris, of course, is the author. Um, he has a new book out about T.I. Raleigh, the making of cycling's first super team. That is, it's a must have. I mean, I have a big, I mean, just like you, I have 
four shelves full of cycling books, maybe more. I don't know. I have a lot of books anyway. And Chris's book is just so good. And the photos in there, um, he's uh, Tom Simpson's nephew, actually, and uh, uses and he has been able to use that those connections to build really good stuff uh, in terms of all of the things he's writing. So with the feed zone, what we're trying to do is take a little a slightly different look, uh, a couple of readers have uh, commented that it's like listening to a bunch of guys who know what they're talking about, talking about cycling in the pub, because we don't talk just about cycling. You know, we talk about food. We're talking about, uh, we, we, we always come up with recommendations at the, at the end of the show. I mean, the, the nexus of this is that we all really love bike racing. We love men's racing. We love women's racing, the road, the track, you know, cyclocross. We are, we're, we've all raced. Uh, some of us still race. We're nerds about this, but we really have a deep love for the sport and the culture. And so that might be the thing about the feed zone that's that's different. Uh, it's as much about the cy- cycling and bike racing culture as it is about, you know, who, you know, is Remco, you know, how's he going to do at the Giro this year? Right. So it's, right. it's a real... I think it's a really cool podcast. I'm going to say this. I have a pretty good life. I do interesting stuff now at this stage. I only get involved in projects that I'm interested in. And I love talking to these guys, these three guys, for an hour and a half on Sunday, every other you know, every other weekend. Um, we only do one show every two weeks. As much as I do anything in my life, they're just so much fun to hang out with. You know, we sit here. It's one o'clock in the afternoon. You know, we got a big mug of Yorkshire gold tea or back in Scotland and Yorkshire, they're drinking beer already because we record it at noon here, Eastern time. Uh, Patrick's still finishing up breakfast out in Spokane, Washington. And we just talk like a bunch of blokes in, in the pub who love cycling. Well, we'll post something about that too. And it, it sounds like fun. I, you know what? It's so interesting, the podcasts that I've suddenly become connected to in addition to the Speed Zone um, there's slow guy on a fast ride and he's I just started following him, Dan. He's wonderful. And then he does the whiskey still. So you can taste whiskey with, with him on Friday afternoons at two mountain time. Wow. Oh yeah. I, I did not know about that. I missed oh, that yeah. part. Oh yeah. Very fun. Anyway, uh, let's tell my listeners how they can help Charles and Diana Pelkey, um, and get through this. And hopefully right. Charles is like, approaching the end of this insanity yeah it is uh definitely insanity you the easiest way um if you're listening and you don't uh, and you said you'll you'll post the link oh, which sure. is great but you just go to gofundme.com and you just it gives you a search option and if if you type in charles pelkey capital c h a r l e s capital p is in peter e l K-E-Y, you type in Charles Pelkey and it takes it right to it. GoFundMe. I am so impressed with the ease that you can mount this mount of uh, you know fundraiser. And in my case, I, I utilize Twitter. I mean, people talk about it kind of being a cesspool, but it gave me access to second connections that I have in the bike industry. And some of those people, Bonnie Ford has been sharing it, um, who you know stood right there next to you know, next to Charles when they were questioning that the American guy who used to have won seven tours de France. Um, <laughs> oh, that guy. 
that guy who, ne- yeah. who shall not be named. I get it. Yes, of course. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. That no, one. I think this is terrific, and we will make sure that everybody knows. Yeah, I put it on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. I took a cartoon that Patrick did of uh, Patrick O'Grady did of him and used that as my cover for Instagram. And it's so cute. You just need to click on it just to see that. So I will, I will be checking that out because um, I, I love, I talked to Patrick, by the way, on the phone this morning for about a half an hour and he's, he's such a great guy and he's, he's very, hilarious. Like, yeah, well, I would hope, right. <laughs> yeah, but you know what's interesting? When you get him on the show, he's extremely um, straight and he has trouble being funny. It's like he gets real shy, but all you have to do is put a pen in his hand and he is hilarious. Well, David, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. We've been speaking with David Stanley. He's done this wonderful thing for Charles and Diana Pelkey. Uh, GoFundMe.com, Charles Pelkey. Let's get him well and uh, whole and, and hope that he doesn't have to worry and just put all his energy into getting better. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Diane. My thanks to David Stanley for joining me, and especially for taking the time and making the effort to help Charles and his family. I can't think of anyone in our world of cycling, or anywhere for that matter, who deserves it more. You can find out more about the GoFundMe campaign, which as of today is $23,400. Go to GoFundMe.com and search Charles Pelkey Needs a Little Help. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll speak with Professor Peter Norton. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. Last week, I saw a Twitter post about the history of the automobile as it relates to pedestrians and how the car culture became as pervasive as it has, leading to so many deaths of pedestrians and other vulnerable road users like cyclists. The poster referred to a book by Dr. Peter Norton, an assistant professor of history at UVA. The book is titled Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City by MIT Press. Peter teaches history of technology, social dimensions of engineering, research, and professional ethics. In our conversation, we cover a lot of the history of how the automobile became so dominant that the streets are no longer safe for our children. I think you will find that the intersection of history and engineering explains a lot about how we are finding ourselves in a culture where the car is king and we are less than mere peons. And please excuse a couple of the places where Peter's audio wasn't perfect. Hello, Peter. Welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? It's my pleasure to be with you, Diane. I'm well, thanks. How about you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. You know, it's winter. What can you say? Although it's pretty mild right now up here in Cleveland. Uh, It's just rainy, gray, typical. Anyway, you know, I saw something on Twitter and uh, about an interview you did with Streets Blog, and I follow Streets Blog, and then I went down this rabbit hole because I have this abiding interest in urban transportation and planning and sustainability and micro-mobility, 
And you just fall right into all of that. So I'd like to start with your background and how you became interested in urban mobility, especially um, looking back into history, because you, you compare then and now a lot. Well, I got interested in urban mobility as a person trying to get around towns and cities. And this goes back far enough that this was at a time when I was not legally permitted to drive because we're talking about me as a, let's say, a teenager. And that extended into my 20s because I got my driver's license relatively late, like mid-20s. And then uh, I, I, you know, I felt marginalized by that. And then I gradually figured out that my experience was far from exceptional. It was very common and it was far from limited to people of my young years at that time. There were, you know, millions of other people who were disadvantaged like this. And I wanted to know why. Uh, and when I looked at the history books, I have to say I found myself uh, underwhelmed by the explanations. <laughs> okay. Because there were none, basically. Well, even worse, I would say there were there were explanations that I think actually obscure what happened more than they reveal. Give us an example of that. So one example is that maybe the most common kind of explanation that I would encounter would be uh, one that you might call the car culture explanation. Uh, one of the more famous versions of this is, is the claim that Americans have a love affair with the automobile. Now, that's an expression. And I thought this expression was some kind of folk wisdom, you know, that grew from the soil. It was an everyday person's explanation for why we often have to drive to get anywhere, at least practically speaking. And decades after I encountered this expression, I found that it was constructed by people who wanted to excuse car dependency uh, and people who were in the business of promoting car dependency. And so that explanation, this car culture explanation, this love affair with the automobile explanation, I mean, first of all, it's not dead wrong. There's a lot of truth to it. But as an explanation for why we don't have choices besides cars, it fairly, for example, you know, most people like fresh ground coffee more than instant coffee, but that doesn't mean you can't choose instant coffee if you want it. So why is it that we live in a world where lots of people like to drive, but if you don't or can't, you don't have any alternatives? And there's a reason for that. And that reason is not the popularity of the car, which does explain some of it. Uh, there's also reasons why we don't have alternatives to the car. And that's the part that that explanation does not deal with. So in your research and in your discovery, did you come up with reasons that we don't have these choices anymore? I mean, we did have choices. I can remember my mother telling me about streetcars in Cincinnati where she grew up. I can remember being a young girl in Cincinnati and taking a bus because I was too young to drive, even though I really wanted my driver's license because everybody wanted a driver's license then, um, clearly for the reasons that you state. So who was promoting this idea that it was the car that was more important than other means of transportation? So there was a kind of a uh, 
crossroads, so to speak, about a century ago, where it was pretty clear that if you wanted to sell cars in cities, your market was going to be limited by the fact that, for one, people had alternatives, like, for example, streetcars, uh, street cities were more walkable too. That was an alternative for many people. And in such a city, you could sell cars. People did want them. They were in a city customer often thought of as a, a car as something to use on the weekend, uh, the Sunday drive to the country. And of course, there were lots of people who needed a car for work, like doctors who paid, paid house calls, people delivering uh, drugs or groceries. Um, these sorts of things mean, meant that there were going to be cars in cities. But the question arose in the 1920s, is this ever going to be a majority practice in cities? And the answer at that time looked like no, simply because the alternatives were good and the disadvantages of car ownership in a city were high. There was not enough parking. It was hard to store. The speed limits were low. Pedestrians were in the streets everywhere. There were streetcars going their own speed in the middle of the street. People felt entitled to use the street on foot or for other purposes. And those things constrained the urban market. And you can actually read the auto execs, the auto club people, the auto manufacturers and the dealers having meetings and saying, look at this, people in this city, Cleveland, Indianapolis, whatever, can afford cars and they are not buying them. And that means we need to re-examine some of these obstacles, obstacles like the fact that drivers were blamed when pedestrians got injured by a car or killed, and also that drivers were blamed for congesting the streets. And so they said, we need to redefine congestion and we need to redefine safety in ways that promote driving rather than deter it. Wow. Let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with Dr. Peter Norton. He's a professor of engineering at the University of Virginia, UVA. Um, and we're talking about what happened a, a century ago when cars were not the only transportation, which it seems like they're becoming even more so today. Fewer buses, certainly where I live, fewer trains or shorter train lines. They don't take you anywhere. I mean, you can go to a place like New York City and get on a subway. But you certainly can't come to Cleveland and get from point A to point B very easily other than on a car. And we're a very sprawled out city. So if these manufacturers and these people who were um, looking to make the car much more um, not only affordable, but much more important to people's lives, how are they getting this done if we have all these people in the streets and we already have streetcars and we already have other ways of getting around? How did they take over? Why did they take over? So the why part is they wanted an urban market where they could expect that more people would buy cars every year and a greater share of even an urban population would have cars as the years passed. Now, how they did that was... I mean, there were there were a number of techniques. They were interested in changing really three categories of things. One was social norms, like who belongs in a street, as as far as everyday people are concerned. Uh, also, laws. Um, 
who's responsible for safety, who's responsible in the event of an injury, who is legally entitled into the street, who is restricted, and how fast can you go if you're in a vehicle. And so uh, norms, laws, and also engineering standards, how do you design streets and roads uh, in such a way that you're serving the population? And they changed the definitions of all three of these things. It's a lot to explain, but I think I can make it simple by picking one uh, distinct example. So up until the 1920s, uh, particularly up through the 19-teens and early 20s, streets were understood to be places for everyone. That is, uh, you could walk anywhere you wanted and so on. Uh, there was an expectation that you not endanger other people and that you not uh, interfere with other people's use of the street. And that standard really favored the status quo, which was people walking where they wanted to walk, uh, people crossing to the middle of the block to board a, st a streetcar or crossing to the middle of the street to board a streetcar. Uh, and all of those kinds of uses slowed drivers down. Uh, they also meant that if a driver were to hit a person with their car, it was the driver who was going to take the blame for that, even if the pedestrian was crossing in the middle of the street, even if the pedestrian wasn't really paying attention. The judges would say, look, you chose to operate the more dangerous machine. You're the one who bears disproportionate responsibility because you're the one whose machine has the capacity to injure others. Pedestrian can't do that. That was the norm then. It was also the legal standard then. And one way to change that, there were several, but the, the one example I'll use, because it, it stands in for many examples, is uh, anti-jaywalking campaigns. Jaywalking was really not a known term. Uh, the earliest examples I can find are from about 1905, but it was basically an unknown term for the next 10 years, at which point people like auto club execs, the people who ran auto clubs, the things that would that were belonged usually to the American Automobile Association or auto dealers or other business people engaged in automobile-related businesses. They had what they called safety campaign. And as part of these safety campaigns, they taught people not walk in the street where they wanted. They got Boy Scouts to volunteer to hand out little cards that scolded people for jaywalking. And those little cards actually taught a lot of people what the term meant. It was a term of abuse. The word jay was like the word hick today, but harsher. Uh, there was a lot of controversy about its use, but it was an effective way to make people think twice before they considered the street as a pedestrian. And that was a way to give the automobile and the driver priority over the pedestrian. That was a social norms technique, but it had a legal component too, because the laws changed as well. Wow. So politics as usual, it's what it sounds like. Politics wins in in a in a <laughs> in, a money, in a money follows politics kind of way or politics follows money kind of way. Uh, uh, now, I'm just not sure which. One of the things that struck me about what you said is that um, that the, the interests have, powerful interests have kept victims of traffic violence from being memorialized. 
we aren't seeing much improvement today. We have ghost bikes. I was just having this conversation with a friend at breakfast this morning um, who's getting into landscape architecture as a second career and looking at urban planning and what's going on with that. And she's a cyclist and she rides pretty much everywhere that she can. And of course is running into the same kinds of problems, but why is it that we, we don't memorialize all these thousands of automobile deaths, 44,000 people died on the roads last year, something in, in that range. And yet it's very trivialized. So, a lot hinges on how we interpret someone's death uh, in a collision uh, or premature death by other causes. When someone like a soldier dies, and we seem to recognize as a society, this is pub loss to be recognized publicly. And so we have war memorials for such people. And we interpret our morals differently, but typically people respond to them as a caution that we should try to pursue a foreign policy that prevents war and that we should very carefully deploy our soldiers overseas and so on. But when someone is killed in a street or, let's say, walking across the street and a, a motor vehicle strike the person the driver has you know, is is in, complicit to some degree in that death. We have typically interpreted that as a private loss to be grieved privately. Sometimes, or actually often, even as proof of the carelessness of the of the victim. In other words, there's a certain amount of sympathy for the victim, but really, this victim was, you know responsible and therefore the loss is not a public loss it's an individual misjudgment or if it was a child it was the parent's failure now that has a history to it because it most definitely was not that way always a hundred years ago several cities erected monuments that resembled war memorials they were temporary monuments but they were elaborate and, and painted to appear to be permanent marble or limestone war memorials. There was one in Baltimore, one in St. Louis, New York, Detroit, Pittsburgh, several other cities had these monuments, which is a little amazing to us today that this would even happen. These were typically monuments specifically honoring the children, and the children were presented as innocent victims. And the parents, especially the mothers, were not singled out for blame. Rather, they were honored publicly as people who had suffered a terrible loss that was not their fault, but rather uh, a public fault for failing to provide streets for their children that were safe and convenient for their children to use. Now, I think the idea of children having a right to the safe and convenient use of their local streets is something we are so many decades removed from that it almost comes as a shock to remind people that that was, in fact, the expectation a century ago, that a child, let's say, of seven or eight or nine years would have a right and be free to use that street, for starters, just to get to and from school, but also to help the parents out to run errands and to play with to go to friends' houses and play. So when that when children lost that safe use of their own streets, 
that was typically regarded as a public failure the way we might regard, you know, unsafe drinking water as a public failure today. And the memorials of that time were a public recognition that this was a public failure and not merely some private error by a parent or a careless pedestrian. When did that change and how did it change? Well, there was uh, resistance to that from the beginning. Uh, people who were interested in selling more cars to people in cities, and that was the toughest market uh, a century ago, was people who lived in cities. Uh, the people who wanted to sell more cars to them were very upset by these memorials. They said so themselves. Um, they ridiculed them. They wrote newspaper columns about them. They wrote to each other in their trade journals about them. They mocked them. They um, came up with some alternatives of their own. There was a, a memorial made by the Packard Motor Company exhibited in, in Detroit that looked like a tombstone uh, with the inscription, I am a jaywalker, you know, uh, so th these were this were these were indications that these monuments were regarded as threats because they blamed the motorist and driver. They blamed the vehicle. And that meant that they legitimized restrictions, restrictions, driving restrictions on speed. So for some years, really for a, a decade or more, there was a competition over whether these would happen. They disappeared pretty quickly in, in the sense of the big ones, but informal smaller memorials persisted. Eventually, many states, I think, but I'm not certain most states, banned them as distractions uh, or as nuisances on their side of the road. I'm talking about the informal memorials that people erected to loved ones. And we have started to see that trend reversed in a small way where many states now authorize informal memorials or approve official signs that have the name of a, of a person who died. Um, and of course, uh, the ghost bicycle or white bicycle movement where we've seen bicycles spray painted white as memorials to people killed while riding their bikes. All of these are signs that there is increasing interest in recognizing these losses as a public failure and not merely a private loss. Let me reintroduce you once again. We're speaking with Dr. Peter Norton. He is a professor of engineering at UVA, and uh, what a fascinating conversation! Uh, I did. You already mentioned the ghost bikes, and of course, we have one here. Uh, it was a very high-profile um, case of a young woman who was killed a few years ago, mm. and a lot of the a lot of the states and cities around the country have a vision zero strategy to end traffic deaths and severe injuries. And it seemed to have some real legs when it first came out. And yet it doesn't feel that way right now since the pandemic. Drivers seem to be more angry, more careless, and less afraid of reckless driving. And of course, the horrible conversation that goes around is if you want to commit murder, the easiest way is to kill somebody with your car while they're riding their bike. So what do you think about this? What What is it going to take to go back to the idea of safe streets that really are safe and the engineering that's going to be required, the urban planning, the changes to do that? Because people are moving back into cities. They're not so sprawling right now. It's going to be very hard to get any significant change as long as we leave unquestioned 
the assumptions that legitimize the status quo. And by that, I mean, we all grow up, I grew up, and I, I will guess that you grew up learning quite early on that streets are for cars, that uh, bikes are for children or for exercise or for leisure or maybe competition, um, that the sort of normal way to go any place that's more than a mile away is with a car, and that the responsibility for safety in the event of any kind of conflict between a pedestrian or a cyclist on the one hand and a motorist on the other, responsibility lies with the pedestrian or the cyclist. Now, those underlying assumptions mean that more specific, more detailed uh, changes like a lower speed limit or a little bit of road design modification or an announcement of a Vision Zero ambition, uh, these kinds of more specific pronouncements are going to be up against a status quo that resists change. Now, Vision Zero is actually an attempt to question the status quo on the on the grounds that the status quo has said that deaths in traffic are inevitable and our job is just to keep them down to a reasonably low level. Well, Vision Zero says, no, hang on, the only reasonably low level is zero. So that in that sense, Vision Zero really does question the underlying assumptions and not just the specific practices. But when Vision Zero actually happens in practice, it tends to take the form of a few specific measures, like, for example, a speed limit, a, uh, a road diet, uh, a design modification, some some traffic calming designs, and those more specific low-level things leave unquestioned this unconscious assumption we tend to have, especially when we drive, that the roads are for us as drivers. And that is a very tough status quo to change. We can take heart, however, that the status quo has changed before, and that means it can change again. One can hope. So, as a professor of engineering, it, uh, you say that you prepare students for a career that focuses on a more sustainable and equitable future. So obviously, this will be the next generation of engineers and planners and all of that. What kinds of things are you focusing on in those classrooms about sustainability and an equitable future? And what kinds of response are you getting from these students who are now growing up in a car-centric world? Well, I have to begin by saying I work in an engineering school, the University of Virginia School of Engineering, but I'm not actually a professor of engineering. My PhD is in history. So I'm a professor of history in an engineering school, and that actually helps me raise those exact points that you've noted. Namely, as individuals, we learn from experience, and sometimes that means we learn the hard way. You know, a child might learn not to touch an iron on an ironing board by touching it, and that will be a very painful way to learn. And that child's sibling might learn by observing the, you know, her brother or something getting a, a burn on the finger and thereby learn a much better way, which is from others' experience. It's a less painful way to, to learn. Well, engineers typically don't study much history. And to my observation, this is one reason why they keep getting their finger burned, so to speak. In other words, they often make the same mistakes because 
they have a kind of amnesia as a discipline that I think it's a historian's job to try to correct. So as we try for a more sustainable future, including a more sustainable urban mobility future, I recommend to them that we have a great deal to learn from the past, sometimes from things that worked well, and and electric streetcars are much more affordable per person than, say, a battery electric vehicle is. Like a like an electric car, like a Tesla or something. We also have a lot to learn from the mistakes of the past. So, for example, we still are training our engines today. Try to mitigate traffic congestion by adding road capacity. A little bit of history is enough to prove that this is very often the wrong way to go about it. And so, history is a is a corrective for this kind of mistake as well. Now, you also asked me about how they receive this as people who grew up with car dependency. And I have to say that at first, it's, I, they often receive it like I'm from another country who barely speaks their language, from a culture that has very little in common with theirs. There is a disconnect there. And I frankly enjoy the disconnect. I enjoy the challenge of trying to help us find some, some common ground. Uh, and it's not hard to find some common ground. Engineers are trained to value efficiency, for example. And it's fairly easy to show them that it's a wonder of efficiency to move a person on a bicycle. It's it's just breathtaking in its energy efficiency. And it's not hard to show them that even if your electric car is electrically powered, it's still you know, 95 plus percent of the mass that it's moving is the vehicle and less than 5% of the mass that it's moving is the occupant if there's one driver and, and no passengers. And so therefore, it's also relatively simple to find at least some common ground. Now, the details get tricky, but that common ground can be found. So this is a pie in the sky question. What are your hopes for a more sustainable and equitable future? Well, it is a pie-in-the-sky question. On the other hand, I think a lot of this pie is right in front of our fingertips. There's a lot of things, very simple, inexpensive, and technically feasible to do already that we are not doing. And my feeling is if that is that if we spent even 1% of the money that's going into things like autonomous vehicles and highway expansions divert 1% of that money into basic things we've known how to do for or even sometimes centuries, we could really start to see some substantial changes that people would welcome, that would expand our choices instead of narrowing our choices that would be more sustainable. So, for example, if we just permitted, we don't even have to do anything, if we just legally permitted a let's say, four-apartment apartment house to open up in a residential neighborhood zoned for single-family houses. Well, right away, we simplify the problem of moving people around because now it's possible for people to live at a density that makes other modes of getting around uh, more feasible. If we just permitted a small grocery store to open up in a residential area, or just permitted a small grocery store to have rented apartments upstairs. These things are often, I mean, depends on the on the jurisdiction, but they're often 
proscribed or prohibited by local zoning ordinances. But we're not even talking about doing anything that involves new money. We're just asking for a relaxation of the rules, which is incidentally something I think liberals and conservatives could unite behind because conservatives say they're for less government intrusion and liberals say they'd like more sustainability and affordability and such a change would serve both uh, interests. Well, I think that following what you're doing might be of interest to a lot of people listening to this conversation. How can my listeners find out more about you, your work? You have published several books. I imagine you're probably working on another one. So how can we follow you and where are your books available? Because they're not all published by the same press. That's right. They're just two books. Um, and you can find both of them on the usual online book retailer sites. Uh, if you prefer to buy it from your local bookstore, I think every bookstore would be happy to order it for you to pick up. Uh, and you can find used copies online, too, um, at the typical is for used books whether that's uh, eBay or Alibris or uh, there are others uh, as well. So they're not hard to get. Um, uh, the books are Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City, which is about the early 20th century. And the other one is called Autonorama, The Illusory Promise of High Driving. And it's about how the effort to sell high-tech driving is a distraction from things we could be doing for much less money with technology that we already have and that already works. Now, I also have, I often speak to audiences, um, go all around the country sometimes speaking to audiences, and some of those hosts video my talk and post the talk as a uh, YouTube video. And so you can find those that on YouTube with a little bit of searching as well. And of course, there are people like you who've had me on as a guest on their podcast, and um, you can find those too. Well, Peter, this is a fascinating conversation. I would love to hear more. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time right now, but we will post all this information to OutspokenCyclist.com. I appreciate you taking so much time to talk with me. We've been speaking with Dr. Peter Morgan. Great. He is a, an assistant professor in the engineering school, but he is a historian. And I think that the history, as we watch history repeat itself over and over and over again, is always good to remember. Uh, and maybe someday we'll stop doing that. <laughs> I hope you have a great afternoon. Thank you so much. Diane, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for your interest. My thanks to Peter Norton for joining me today. As he mentioned, you can find his books online, and I've added a link to each of them on our OutspokenCyclist.com website. Once again, my thanks to David Stanley for joining me and for being the impetus to help our friend, Charles Pelkey. I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember that you can always find links, photos, and show notes at OutspokenCyclist.com. You can also download the episodes there, or never miss an episode by subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Please stay well, stay safe, and until next time, remember, there is always time for a ride. Bye-bye.
joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We welcome your thoughts and contributions on our Facebook page, or visit OutspokenCyclist.com to leave a comment on any episode. We will be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and you'll never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of BBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.